This is Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM in San Francisco. This is Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And this is Jamal Dejani. Jamal, we have a really exciting show today to our Arab Talk listeners and viewers from all over the world. We continue to broadcast uh, remotely from our locations in uh, Northern California continuing to bring you Arab Talk shows on a weekly basis. Today, we're going to be covering a lot of things, Jamal. We have a, we have a, a big show. We're going to be covering European Union uh, ruling on the BDS movement. We're going to be covering the ICC kind of collaboration between the United States and the Israelis in terms of their attempts to uh, avert and avoid international accountability with the ICC. And, of course, we're going to get an update on the uh, coronavirus. And if there's time, you know, we'll continue to speak about the ongoing struggles that this country continues to have with endemic structural racism. So it's a it's an action-packed show today, Jamal. we got a lot to cover. That's right, Jess. And uh, we've had also, just to add, uh, an interview uh, with uh, Dr. Hatem Bazian from, uh, he's the co-founder of uh, the Zaytuna College in uh, the Bay Area right here. And also uh, he teaches at uh, UC Berkeley. And we talked about uh, mentioning what this country is struggling with today, racism. Let's, let's call it what it is. What it is. And uh, the connection between racism and Islamophobia and this whole thing, you know. So let's uh, uh, listen to Dr. Hatem Bazian. Joining us from his shelter in place in Northern California, Dr. Hatem Bazian, co-founder and professor of Islamic law and theology at Zaytuna College and at the departments of Near Eastern and Asian American and Asian Diaspora Studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Welcome again to the show, Dr. Hatem. Thank you, Jamal, for having me. And uh, we look forward to talking with you. So as you have been watching, the, not only the United States, but the whole world have been basically watching what's going on in the United States in the aftermath of the killing of George Floyd. Yet uh, several uh, Trump uh, administration officials claimed Sunday that systematic racism is not an issue in the U.S. law enforcement agencies and uh, we've been hearing a lot of coverage from several uh, networks and pundits on TV focusing on the rioting and the isolated cases of uh, looting that we've seen and not on the issues itself. Uh, so are people, uh, as some claim, that they've been overreacting about racism in the United States? Uh, is this like a temporary thing? Well. I don't want to put uh, that the Trump administration is even capable of analyzing and considering structural racism. Uh, if anything, they're a symptom of it as much as uh, the broader uh, racism, uh, systemic and structural racism that we have. Uh, the police departments and how they conduct themselves in uh, black communities uh, has a long, long record. Myself and possibly I know that uh, you were present during the Rodney King, uh, where we got uh, mostly involved in the Bay Area and San Francisco during the whole episode uh, of Rodney King, which was one of the initial cases that recording and 
visual ev evidence of police that was just unleashing their force and power protected by their badge uh, on Rodney King. And we also at the time uh, witnessed, rather than focusing on the police, making Rodney King background history record as the problem. And that is again a result of this uh, systematic and structural racism, uh, where the victim is victimized again and again uh, victimized by first being beaten, victimized again by making them the uh, issue that needs to be discussed, victimized at the court with the legal system that is unjust in how it treats uh, African Americans and treats them as uh, guilty, and uh, the record of police officers uh, that in, end up killing and beating African-Americans, and they never are taken into uh, account. Uh, Derek Chauvin, who uh, killed uh, uh, George Floyd, had 18 complaints, uh, serious complaints against him. You're right. And uh, if anything, uh, you're talking about three strikes, you're out, which has been used to derail the life and... Um, the well-being of so many African-Americans into the unjust legal system, uh, Chauvin should not have been on the street. He should have been locked up uh, much earlier, if not let go. And then the other police officers, I'm forgetting his name, he also have a record himself. That's right. Uh, seven uh, different uh, cases uh, against him. And the question that puts itself is what are the standards that uh, these police officers uh, have. And it's basically an old boys network that circulate uh, through a process uh, that the structure itself gives uh, power and force uh, to the police forces to continue to uh, violate the uh, civil and human rights of black communities. And in essence, act as if you are dealing with an occupation zone. They don't go to, to uh, serve and protect. They go to shoot and, in essence, control. And it's a, also a mindset that has a long history. So again, uh, taking Trump seriously on his analysis of uh, race and race issues in this country and systematic racism in the police department puts an insult to the whole category of scholarship in there. You've mentioned uh, an occupation zone and the terrible images that we've been seeing on TV from the horrific death of uh, George Floyd uh, with the police officer having his knee on his neck to tear gas, to tear gas canisters being lobbed at demonstrators to rubber bullets and, and the, the roughing up of, uh, of course, demonstra demonstrators remind me of the practices of the Israeli occupation uh, army targeting Palestinians. Uh, we also know that law enforcement officials travel to Israel for training. Why do you think that the media uh, has been ignoring to make uh, this connection? Policing and security engagement in black communities uh, has been a systemic and historical problem for the longest period of time. Uh, the police departments in their origination 
especially in the South, uh, came out of uh, slave patrols. Those individuals that went out to seek and capture runaway slaves, disciplining slaves, and so on. So that institution have led and transformed into police departments after the end of the slavery and during the reconstruction period. I'm saying this uh, while knowing that many of the police departments right now uh, go down to, to train in Israel. We have the report about the deadly exchange that some of the uh, pro-Israel organizations in the US, whether the ADL, AJC, JCRC, and APAC and others promote that Israel is the go-to expert for training. And it was not surprising that both uh, AJC and the ADL and the uh, American Zionist organization, uh, rather than actually addressing systematic racism, they actually are attacking Black Lives Matter. So that shows you some of these issues and alliances. Now, the police department have always been uh, in terms of its approach to black communities, is seeing the black communities as a zone to control, uh, rather than, again, to engage in uh, uh, serving, uh, engaging in uh, approaches that actually uh, promote the health and well-being of the community. And you cannot disconnect the policing from the broader economic, social, political approaches uh, to the black communities, redlining, uh, 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 gentrification that takes the investments away and shape and bring in uh, developers. In essence, it fits as one of the pieces in the broader uh, structural erasure and targeting of the uh, black communities and therefore their neighborhoods are structurally made to be in the conditions that they are in and you add schooling and education, uh, then you have a complete uh, um, system of dehumanization and complete system of erasure. And as such, when you see these protests come up, uh, for those who are outside that have been living what you call in uh, Club Med type of uh, worldview, uh, they are taken unshocked uh, because of uh, what is happening. And again, the shock should be that they are completely uh, uh, unaware and completely delusional. Uh, and they assume that because they maybe like basketball and they understand or appreciate uh, LeBron James or Michael Jordan, or because they appreciate some of the African-American cultural production music, they also assume that they're not, quote, racist because, you know, how can I be? Because I... You know, I like rap, I like uh, their music, I like uh, the sports. And this is, again, it's another aspect of commodification of the racism in ways that you're not even uh, aware. And we could see it in some of the responses that our people are having. Uh, you really have to both deprogram yourself to begin with in order to understand what is taking place and what is occurring. Uh, so anyone that understands race and racism uh, have to come to the conclusion that uh, these protests are symptoms of, the, of a much more deeper problem. Uh, and what we need is to understand how to address it. And then the international dimension is also connected to it in the sense of all these training programs uh, that were uh, superimposed post 9-11 as well, 
mm. in a sense of the uh, uh, militarization domestically, surveillance domestically that is connected to militarization and surveillance at a global level. So the local global in here is actually very present in front of us. So uh, I, I believe in spring 2009, you founded uh, at Berkeley the Islamophobia Research and Documentation Project at the Center for Race and Gender, a research unit dedicated to the systematic study of othering uh, Islam and Muslims. Uh, obviously, Islam is not a race, uh, but what's the connection between Islamophobia and racism? Well, uh, again, when we think of Islamophobia, Islamophobia is a form of racialization of a targeted group, meaning that we need to distinguish between how we define race. And there's many different race. One aspect of race and racism has to do with the skin tone or skin color, but other has to do with racial markers because there are some individuals that are racialized because of their religion. So what is the meaning of anti-Semitism? If, you don't if we don't understand that the racial marker in there is religion. Uh, the Jewish community been racialized in Europe as a result of uh, uh, Judaism. Uh, there are some that racialize as a result of language. So language uh, is the racial marker that is used. Uh, all these uh, race and racism are social constructs that are supported by political uh, uh, structures that begins to uh, intertwined into legal inclusion and exclusion. So in this sense, when we think of Islamophobia, Islamophobia is racializing Muslims as a result of a perceived identity, religious identity, that also has a racial skin tone. Most of Muslims are from the Southern Hemisphere and also been subject to colonization. So in this sense, when we study Islamophobia, we actually don't begin with uh, 2001-9-11, we actually go back to the arrival of Columbus or pre-Columbus. We begin with the Inquisition, mm -hmm. uh, where the construction of whiteness as an ideological framework, uh, Europe was constructed to be a Christian and white, opposite uh, non-white and non-Christian. And those two categories, Muslims and Jews in Europe, were both uh, non-Christian and all as well as uh, in particular for the Muslim population and those Jews from North Africa were predominantly actually of African background with darker mm. complexion. So you have to actually trace that trajectory of the emergence of uh, this uh, social construction of race emerges at that point and then gets to be exported into the new world uh, that begins to formulate the same type of topography, which is interesting, the same type of uh, inquisition codes or black codes that were used in Spain uh, through the expulsion of Muslims and Jews were applied toward native population. Uh, and then on back of that, you, you bring in the uh, slave uh, period or the enslavement of people from uh, Western Sub-Saharan Africa. So you have to study that as a way to ground the understanding of what Islamophobia and how to approach it. I'm very critical of people who engage in Islamophobia from the field of uh, acculturation and uh, integration. And therefore it's basically, well, it's your problem. Basically you are not integrated and simulated mm -hmm. and not actually looking it in the normative uh, practices that existed both in Europe and the United States. 
Uh, and as such, we have to locate it in that long history of race and racism and racialization in American history. Yeah. Uh, so now we're at a, uh, I don't want to call it a watershed event, but it seems uh, that some people now maybe are hopeful and they believe that the death of George Floyd will not go in vain. Are you hopeful that there will be a meaningful reform at the establishment level to put an end to profiling, racism, and police brutality? Or six weeks from now, uh, or three months from now, everyone is going to forget about it and, and we're going to go back to business as usual? Uh, well, it all depends uh, on the actions and the work that we do. Uh, uh, again, politics is a contact sport, meaning that you have to continue to be persistent. We have a movement, or not a movement, but we have a moment of massive protests, both domestically and internationally, that have put uh, uh, a spotlight on systemic racism in the police uh, institutions uh, and policing. But the policing uh, is given authority by means of the political leadership. Uh, so what we need is to begin to look at what are the ways that we need to actually uh, put forth uh, uh, meaningful and la long-lasting changes. So the abolishment and defunding of the police departments are on the table. It's very important because it shifts the boundaries of the conversation. Uh, we have to put uh, immediate uh, pressure on uh, the local political leadership, city councils, uh, mayor's office, because they are the ones that are responsible for the police departments. And what we need is to insist on civilian authority and oversight. We should not allow, whether we get into the point that the police department is defunded or abolished, in either case, that the authority to oversee and manage these police departments should be in civilian hands and those civilian uh, hands should be uh, having the total authority to discipline, to formulate the trainings that uh, are taking place. Fourth, I think we need to completely uh, challenge the notion of surveillance that is taking place, uh, facial recognition, all these tools that creates that the problem is the citizen rather than the institutions that are uh, there. Uh, other elements that has to be there is that we need to insist that the police officer should have, uh, from the moment that a 911 call is entered, that their camera should be on and should be transmitting directly to both a civilian board and also to the uh, police headquarters. And then also inside the car, because if you, those who witnessed uh, George Floyd was beaten up in the car as well. So the cameras in the car should be broadcasting as well two or three uh, scenes, and it should go to both to a private, uh, uh, not a private, but a civilian oversight and also the HR people within the institution. So we need to actually think of a very serious way of how we think about policing and what policing is all about while simultaneously pushing for defunding and uh, abolishing. And then challenge, uh, as you know, in, this, in many of these cities, these uh, uh, police uh, commissions are basically a rubber stamp to the police department. 
uh, we need to do away with the, that the police department actually selects who are the people that are going to be uh, actually overseeing them. So we need to get rid of this. I'm for more for of actually these individuals that constitute these police commissions as one either to be elected or to be actually drawn from communities that are greatly impacted uh, by police violence and be subject to a very rigorous um, uh, oversight. And then the whole immunity that is given, qualified immunity that is given to the police have to be ditched as well. So all those ideas as, as well others, I'm not I'm speaking here just in terms of ideas, but I know that individuals that work on police reforms are uh, having a whole host of ideas uh, to try to change the systematic racism and systematic discrimination that exists, which is connected to broader. So simultaneously, we have to work on other areas of the society to get us to the point where, where we are at. These are all great points. Uh... You've been listening to the voice of Dr. Hatem Bazian. I want to thank you uh, again uh, for coming on Arab Talk, and, and hopefully we can speak in person soon, inshallah. That's the voice of uh, Professor Hatem Bazian, professor and co-founder at Zaytuna College in uh, Berkeley, California, as well as uh, professor of ethnic studies at uh, UC Berkeley. Well, Jamal, I think uh, Hatem really was able to break it down in a very digestible, important, yet um, poignant way on the linkage between Islamophobia and racism in this country. Very compelling discussion. That's right, Jess. And of course, uh, the demonstrations are still ongoing. Uh, they don't have the intensity as they had uh, before. Nevertheless, I mean, we've seen uh, last week we talked about, of course, the murder of George Floyd and, of course, the very uh, moving uh, funeral uh, that he had had and uh, also the demonstrations. And in the meantime, we've witnessed uh, several incidents uh, of uh, uh, police brutality, really, uh, against the demonstrators. Uh, one of them was this 75-year-old who was pushed to the ground, uh, started to bleed through his ear. And then Trump says that this guy's an agitator, you know. Uh, I mean, well, here he is. not just an agitator, but... Uh, uh, Antifa. A, a, Antifa kind of provocateur. I mean, here he was lying in uh, in bed in the ICU unit, and the president of the United States is vilifying him. Instead of saying this should have not happened, he was peaceful. They just get pushed, and an entire basically group of policemen walk past him. They don't stop to give him aid. A couple of days ago, I watched also uh, on TV this uh, young Palestinian-American woman in uh, New York who was basically just tossed yeah, to I the ground, that. like right. with this policeman who looked like a football player, right. you know. Uh, and again, she was just uh, using her phone to film and just he took her, boom, threw her to the curb. Uh, she was lucky that she did not go into a coma. She had a concussion, and she appeared on TV with her lawyer talking about her experience. She's young. She felt like she had to go and demonstrate seeing what happened to her friends in the African-American community and the story of George Floyd. And it, it really bothered me because, you know, here she was young, enthusiastic, peaceful, and she's saying that she was now afraid of the police. She stopped driving her car. And she was taking Uber all over the place because she was worried about 
getting stopped by uh, NYPD because they all saw her on TV or right. known about her. And uh, she was apologetic that if she would go again, even though she wanted to demonstrate, basically she was demonstrating for justice in, in this country. So uh, things uh, are still ongoing. and uh, but, it, but in some ways, Jamal, they're ongoing, but in some ways even though the fundamental structural racist elements uh, in this society are being kind of exposed yet again, and we're talking about hundreds of years of structural oppressive racism that uh, black Americans have been experiencing, uh, it's also, we're able to see, you know, based on what uh, Hatton was saying and what we've been talking about, the extension of that racism to other uh, communities of color whether it be uh, people from the Arab world, Middle East and North Africa, Latino brothers and sisters, Asian brothers and sisters. I mean, we're really seeing laid bare the full extent of the racist structures that are affecting all these different communities right now. And, you know, if you're a young Palestinian woman, you still have First Amendment rights, but you could see that the police targeted this young woman among all of the protesters that were there, Jamal, and all of the people who had iPhones and and telephones who were filming these things, they went after this young woman, and um, they're instilling this kind of fear in people, and they're, um, you know, confronting their First Amendment rights. It's really very disturbing. Yeah, the last question I posed to Dr. Bazian was, with everything that is going now, uh, are we? Is this a watershed event? Are we going to see? Because people say, um, you know, justifiably so, that George Floyd changed the world, not only the United States, the impact of what happened to him. And I'm saying, well, how is that going to be interpreted three months from now, six months, right. months from now? Right. And 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 basically, are we going to see? I mean, we see the outpouring uh, sympathy and, of course, the resistance by um, the President of the United States and other groups and trying to make excuses and shift the debate to, uh, you know, a few rioters here and there. And whether we're going to see a structural change in this whole law enforcement attitude, uh, profiling of brown and black people, and um, racism in this country. I mean, this is the most important thing. And then, of course, last week, you know, we dedicated a whole right. show about training these uh, police officers in Israel and the brutality that is being practiced by the Israeli occupation army. And it's kind of being imported right. to, back to this country. Right. Is this part of that whole structural thing? Because we hear, we hear talk about... Um, Oh, let's stop the chalk hold. Let's stop uh, the knee on the neck. I don't hear them talking about let's stop that training in this apartheid state. That's right, Jamal. Which has no value to human life or or human rights. And and that still up till today, I don't hear this on CNN, Fox News, and and others. They're trying to kind of ignore it. Total deafening silence. I think that's right, Jamal, and I think that's a very important point. You see some of the branding and some of the talking points. In, instead of talking about the larger issue of police and state-sponsored uh, uh, oppression and violence against people of color, you're seeing 
okay, let's not do the chokehold. Let's not do the tear gas. Focusing on specific techniques instead of the larger issue, which is the use of state power and state violence against people of color. And this is why, and we'll be talking about how this relates to, um, you know, the Israelis a little bit later, but this has got to be making Israelis in in power and, you know, Benjamin Netanyahu and and his ilk, it's got to be making them very, very uncomfortable right now because their, their, um, their pass, if you will, on the international stage only comes because of the United States. And now that these issues are being confronted here in the United States, at some point, and we're seeing little elements of this coming from the Biden campaign, not a lot, but some, some of this is going to affect the the nature of the really problematic, uh, regressive relationship that and cover that the United States uh, provides for uh, the state of Israel and their and and their violent practices. Because the number one militarized police state, probably in the world right now, is Israel. That's it's a, right. It's a militarized police state. They use tear gas. In fact, you know this, we did a tear gas study for the Berkeley Human Rights Center, and uh, we found that the effects of tear gas on communities in Palestine, especially in the refugee camps, had a devastating impact on people's physical, emotional, uh, medical health. And, um, you know, it's the same well, we've tear, seen, it's we've the same tear exact- gas. Yeah, we've we've been seeing uh, tear gas uh, canisters uh, being lobbed. We're seeing rubber right. bullets in this country. That's right. We're seeing the same tactics, the same, you know, some of these images with the cloud coming from the tear gas uh, just reminded me of scenes from the West Bank or, or Gaza. Absolutely. And the same, also the same way, the, the militarized uh, fatigue that uh, these policemen were wearing also reminded me of the Israeli occupation army. You're listening to Arab Talk on KPO San Francisco 89.5 FM. We also uh, welcome our viewers on Facebook and our viewers on YouTube. I want to shift gears right here just and talk about the European Court of Human Rights, which ruled basically Thursday today that France violated the freedom of expression of pro-Palestinian activists who were convicted for campaigning against Israeli goods. The court just ordered the French government to pay 101,000 euros, uh, about $115,000 in overall damages to a group of 11 activists, the Global Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions, the BDS movement, uh, basically they're activists from that. And of course, this was hailed by many human rights organizations. And uh, this is started by, you know, the protesters led by French activist Jean-Michel Baldassi, Right. These guys were just not only they were convicted, they were arrested, they were convicted. And this is the charge of I never heard of this charge of incitement to economic discrimination, incitement to economic discrimination. In other words, if I walk into if I walk in in, in, to Safeway in this country or Whole Foods and I see a a product that I don't like to buy, it doesn't have to be Israel and I, I boycott it then I might be charged 
for incitement to economic discrimination. Exactly. And this is by after it actually happened, uh, they took part of this in 2009, a demonstration at a supermarket in, eastern, uh, in the eastern French town of Ilzach, uh, or Ilzach, I think. And uh, they were handing out basically leaflets calling for a boycott of Israeli products. And, uh, and of course, Francis Topcourt uh, upheld the conviction. So listen, so just if you go in front of your favorite store here and hold leaflets and decide to boycott, uh, you know, maybe French wine or uh, French cheese or whatever, is that uh, incitement to economic discrimination? Well, uh, apparently the uh, European uh, Commission on Human Rights uh, took uh, a decision that really decided that, at least on the European stage, Jamal. Now, the one, one of the things that I really liked about this ruling from the ECHR is that the ruling was unanimous. And so the fact that the entirety of the court ruled unanimously against uh, this ruling in France says a lot about how perverse and how outrageous this French uh, lawsuit was, as if you don't have the right, as you said, and as if we've been saying on Arab Talk for many years, probably decades now, talking about people's right to be able to pick and choose what goods they buy. And if you choose to boycott Israeli goods, which is a perfectly legal everywhere else in the world, we've done it in South Africa, we've done it in other places, there is no this is back to this thing. We we have to say it to the Israelis. You guys are not special. You do not stand outside of international law. And so what the ECHR has said to the Israelis loud and clear, you're not special. You are well, going to, uh, you are going to be yeah, held to the same standards. Yeah, well to the credit uh, to the uh, human rights court, uh, it described the protesters actions and I'm quoting from the ruling as a form of political expression and a subject of public interest. It Absolutely. noted that Article 10 of the Human Rights Charter, which guarantees freedom of expression, allows for such protest action as long as it doesn't cross the line and turn it into a call for violence, hatred, or intolerance. Exactly. So, so it is my right to boycott French cheese, I want because I like it. But anyway, I'm just giving examples to just maybe these kind of can relate to the French. If how do they, how would they feel if we decide to boycott French cheese? But I believe, Jamal, this was not really a French thing. This was part of a, an elite Israeli kind of uh, a group that has infiltrated aspects of the French, uh, you know, government and French uh elite um and you know they tried to get away with it and uh, and and finally with some justice the the european uh high commission on human rights was able to rule unanimously i want to quote from rita ahmed jamal she's from the palestinian led bds movement she said this momentous court ruling is a decisive victory for freedom of expression for human rights defenders and for the bds movement and for Palestinian freedom, for justice and equality. And it confirms, by the way, Jamal, according to Rita, the 2016 European Union position defending the right to call for BDS against Israel to, to achieve Palestinian rights under international law. So this confirms the larger EU position 
on the role of BDS. So we have it both from a political and a legal standpoint. Yeah, Jesse, you're absolutely right. You know, in fact, uh, the European Union's foreign affairs chief at the time in 2016, Frederica Mogherini, said that BDS activities were protected by the freedom of expression, even though the EU opposes BDS's uh, attempts to isolate Israel. It's a tremendous victory for, um, for freedom, for justice, for international law. It's a tremendous victory for the BDS movement, which has been gaining uh, in its strength and its power uh, all over the world. And um, I really see this as part of this larger thing that's happening, uh, Jamal, that we're going to kind of talk, because we're going to talk about the ICC here in a minute, that basically what, what the Trump administration has been doing to erode international law and to erode international sanctions, and to support all these thuggish dictatorships and apartheid states like Israel is coming back to haunt them. Because now the EU, as I said, both politically as well as legally, has come down squarely on the side of BDS. This also, I think, as I said before, this has got to be making the Israeli elite very, very nervous because the BDS movement is going to get more steam internationally from this and the Black Lives Matter movement, Jamal, as we heard Hatem speak about, dovetails very nicely with the BDS movement and the and the you know and and the kind of goal of BDS, which is you know justice and equality and and you know uh, uh, and rights for everybody, including Palestinians. So this is making people very nervous. Having said that, we should talk about how the United States and Israel are coordinating to attack the ICC or the International Criminal Court. The International Criminal Court, universally, except for Israel and the United States, under the Trump administration, is really considered one of the most important international legal bodies you know, in the world, if not the most important legal body. And we're finding out, this is from in-depth reporting from Axios, Jamal, that the Trump administration and Israel coordinated U.S. authorization of sanctions, sanctioning the international criminal court. Okay, so let me, let, let me, let me let, let's just kind of think about this for a minute. About two decades ago, I mean, I mean, we're talking about this is in, you know, since the international criminal court was set up just to try the worst violations of international human rights law. Right. Right. I mean. A lot of these courts, whether it's the United United Nations, whatever, these came in the aftermath of World War II, right, to try criminals, and we saw what happened in Serbia and 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 so forth, right? Right. And then and so so now, I mean, this was actually created in two thousand two, the court, and it was created as a deterrent against the erosion of an international order designed to prevent a repetition of atrocities of the Second World War. Exactly. I mean, these are including, by the way, we talk about the Hague, the ICC, all, all these different mechanisms to kind of bring people who, who repeatedly violate human rights. Right. And, and, commit, and now the United States is against it. It's only two countries, by the way, are, who are against it. Israel and the United States because they want to prevent 
any of their military or, uh, you know, citizens well, from being brought to can, justice, right? Right. And I, and I can think of a number of examples. The atrocities committed by the U.S. military in Iraq, the atrocities committed by um, U.S. security and intelligence services by setting up torture centers and black sites all over the world to torture people illegally under international law. And of course, Israel is probably one of, one of, if not the biggest violator of international rights when they blockade uh, Gaza for over 10 years or where they illegally uh, annex a stolen Palestinian land. So of course, the two biggest thuggish perpetrators against, inter- you know, uh, you know, flaunting their nose in international law, Jamal, have come together. The Trump administration and the Israelis are now coming together to attack the ICC. Yeah, and so now they're finding out, of course, because the uh, ICC's uh, uh, chief uh, prosecutor, uh, his name is Fatou Pensouda, right? And he, or she, I'm sorry, not he, it's a she, she has been threatening to investigate two states. They haven't started. They haven't started the work yet. The United States and Israel, right? This is now on the agenda. So the court, under her leadership, is considering examining widespread human rights abuses perpetrated by U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan. Uh, you mentioned Iraq, but I only saw a mention of Afghanistan and crimes committed by Israeli soldiers in. The occupied Palestinian territory territories, especially in Gaza, as well as the officials responsible for Israel's illegal settlement program. That's on their agenda. It hasn't yet moved, but there has been a serious plan to start the ball rolling on these. And now, both Israel and the United States. Uh, both Benjamin Netanyahu and Donald Trump are attacking it from different angles. Well, Jamal, I guess we should not be surprised that two of the biggest thugs who flip and shun international law, who flaunt uh, their power, uh, are very nervous about this. And, you know, we, we have talked about this, how these are two individuals who should be very nervous about these mass global movements against racism, against apartheid, and against human rights. These are the two people in particular and two two governments in particular that need to be very nervous about it. I mean, when you think about what the Trump administration has done, tried to defund the WHO, tried to, you know, basically sanction the ICC, tried to shut down the United Nations Committee on Human Rights, trying to shut down the UN the UNRWA, all of these things that these international bodies, as you said, are seeking to, you know, protect human rights, protect human health rights, and try to keep the global order. These are the organizations that the Israelis and the Americans under the Trump administration, at least, want to see um, attacked. I, I'm very optimistic. You know me, Jamal, I'm very pessimistic usually. But I see that the timing of these mass movements, Black Lives Matter and George Floyd, are really going to turbocharge and help facilitate some of these other movements that we're seeing, like the BDS movement and other movements confronting 
racism and uh, attacks on human and health rights all over the world. Yeah, and I've been looking at the history of of, uh, of basically what's happening at the ICC. And frankly, if you look at it before, uh, it just uh, because there has been a change in the leadership, right. uh, uh, they avoided bringing any charges against the United States. I mean, how how could they go after the only superpower in the world? Uh, on Iraq or anything else, uh, even before going back to some abuses in Vietnam and so forth. And they have avoided this. Uh, and of course, the United States has, has veto power at the United Nations. Nobody wants to kind of mess with the United States. We are, in a way, the United States puts itself as the arbitrator in everything, right? And so there has been a change now under the Trump administration because they didn't bring these things under Obama, didn't bring these things under Clinton and so forth. Only under the Trump administration, they feel empowered seeing that this guy doesn't care and he doesn't care about human rights. Maybe we should now start targeting the United States. Right. Now, as far as Israel, Israel for years avoided this because the claim is, which uh, it's important for our listeners to know, is that, uh, well, Palestine is not a country. That's how was the plan. Well, you know, you don't, Palestine was not a member of these different organizations. And if you remember a few years ago, the Israelis were freaking out, including, by the way, even the United States was against having Palestine joining the different memberships and different bodies, you know, at the UN when it was permitted. So as basically uh, Palestine was recognized uh, by the United Nations and was given a seat as, you know, uh, moved from the observer seat right. to kind of uh, being uh, given the right to basically... Uh, it's been five years uh, to right. basically join these different organizations. They now have the right to bring these uh, charges. And, right. uh, and, and uh, Mahmoud Abbas, for years, people were, were encouraging him. Well, why don't you bring Israel uh, to the ICC? And he was like, oh, well, let's wait. We're still negotiating. And then so finally they said, okay, fine, do whatever you want to do. Right. So so that's what made the changes, both on the United States because of uh, basically Trump and both on Israel, because now uh, you can advance uh, Palestinian cases through the the ICC. Well, I know this sounds really crazy what I'm going to say, Jamal, but Donald Trump may be the best thing to happen to human rights and international accountability than than anybody. His outrageous behavior, like the Israeli outrageous behavior, uh, is finally getting some traction in terms of accountability. Now, the Israelis felt protected for, you know, for 70 years, Jamal, because of the United States. That protection is now beginning to uh, fade. So, you know, this could be a very interesting time. I only... But but listen listen to this, just it, it will blow your mind. You know, the we've mentioned the prosecutor, uh, um, you know, the, I mean, the um, Ben Suda, right? And uh, Ben Suda, ever since he brought this, uh, she, uh, ever ever she brought these, she has been de- denied a a visa to travel to the United States. Of course. And and uh, and Washington has threatened to confiscate her and the ICC judges' assets and put them on trial. The United States has also vowed to use force to liberate any Americans put. In the dock, in other words, you know, if they arrest a, uh, 
a human right violator, which that's what you do to war criminals, that the United States will invade the court and free free the perpetrators if they were if they were uh, Americans. So basically, the United States wants to talk about human rights, but there is an exceptionalism exceptionalism to for the United States and Israel. Well, they are untu- basically the United States and Israel are untouchable. Uh, well, you know, I think the way this movement, this global movement, is happening to confront uh, to confront this Jamal is is you know giving both Donald Trump and Benjamin Netanyahu a, a little bit of um, reconsideration of their thuggish behavior. Okay, Jamal, we only have a few minutes left, and I wanted to make sure we did a quick uh, update. Um, Bad news on the COVID-19 situation. Worldwide, we have 7.5 million cases and 420 global deaths. This is a dramatic increase. And in terms of the United States, Jamal, we've hit a very grim milestone. 2.0 million people plus Americans have been diagnosed as having the COVID-19 virus, and we're now, as of this morning, 113,500 Americans have died, 24 states, Jamal, since they've reopened, since Memorial Day, and since there's been a relaxing of, um, you know, uh, people's ability to go out. Uh, We've seen up to 24 states with dramatic um, increases in the number of cases. Arizona, for example, had to institute emergency procedures today, Jamal, because, you know, the number of hospitalizations for the COVID-19 uh, is spiking out of control. We see the same thing having happening in Texas and in Florida. And um, as we've been saying on the show for a long time, Jamal, this COVID uh, pandemic is nowhere near to being uh, on top of. And yet people are going forward with reopening in uh and I'm afraid in a very kind of unthoughtful way. We also have to call out California in Los Angeles, in SoCal, dramatic increases in the number of people who are diagnosed, who are hospitalized, and who are dying. So the situation remains very grim, in my opinion. So what's going to happen? I mean, I've, I've looked at the calendar. Uh, a lot of states are going to be opening uh, fully, basically, uh, some start right few days from now, mid June. Others, uh, m- uh, several states said, said that uh, July fourth, which is you know a big week, and everything was going going to be open. And and so, what's going to happen then? Here's what's going to happen: more people are going to get infected, more people are going to get hospitalized, and more people are going to die. And whatever flattening of the curve that we've seen in this country. There's the real potential that that flattening could be undone. And what the models are predicting now, and the models have been pretty accurate for the most part, are we're going to see a very dramatic second wave of infection, hospitalizations, and death in the fall, Jamal, probably in September after the, you know, the, the, the kind of summer months. And then as we go into the fall and winter with the flu season happening and the coronavirus happening at the same time. It's looking very bleak right now for the future. Well, uh, your predictions sadly match the reaction from the financial markets today. 
because uh, that temporary euphoria that uh, things are improving and there was a recovery in the markets today. I think the markets uh, plunged like something initially over a thousand points, 1500 points, because people are, or at least uh, people who are in the financial business do not believe that uh, we're seeing any progress in uh, controlling the spread so let me of ask the coronavirus. You, when was the last time you heard from the United States Coronavirus Task Force? Haven't. They, they, those updates, I only basically watch the, uh, you know, Governor Newsom uh, and yeah, but, others, but, uh, but not the president. Our, our vice president, they stopped giving briefings. And here's another thing you're not hearing about, Be- because, because they're not going to be giving any positive briefing. No, briefings. and here's the other thing. There is a dramatic uh, shortage of personal protective equipment still. You still have nurses and doctors and health professionals still not having enough personal protective equipment still. So there still remains very big shortages for that. Um, This is going to have dramatic, catastrophic consequences, Jamal. And uh, we don't have time to talk about it today, but in Africa and in South America and now in the Middle East, we're seeing big spikes. We're seeing, a. We last week there was a big spike in North Korea which was touted as being a success. So, you know... So, so quickly, so quickly uh, Jess, is this the second wave of coronavirus or is it just a buildup on the first wave? Because, you know... I think this is a buildup, frankly. And I think what this is, is you saw what happens when you relax, when you relax the uh, prohibitions. When people are allowed to go out and not practice social distancing, you see a spike. The second wave is going to come in the fall when the oh vi- my god when the virus uh, gets re-energized and people are even doing even less social distancing, and um, like the flu, it's going to come back with a. Unfortunately, I believe it's going to come back with a vengeance. Now, Dr. Fauci said. And this is in spite of the Trump administration not saying anything. And, pro, you know, he's going to have his big Republican convention with all of these people, probably in Jacksonville. Dr. Fauci saying this is his worst nightmare, what he's seeing right now with all of these spikes. So, Well, on this bad note, okay. just, I, I don't want to <laughs> okay, hear we more. Better, <laughs> we better stop on be, that bad note, right? <laughs> on that bad note. You've but, been listening uh, I was to, hoping. Yeah, I'm sorry I don't have any good news. So sorry, yeah. listeners. But you've been listening to Arab Talk on KPOO 89.5 FM. Uh, You are listening to us on many different ways, 89.5 FM, on our podcast, ArabTalkRadio.com, Jamal's uh, Facebook page, which is Jamal Dejani 2. And um, gosh, we hope to be back with you next week, continuing to give you the real news, not the news that's in denial here on Arab Talk. Talk to you next week.